We want to get back into the Book of Romans and remind me at the end, uh, remind everybody of a couple of announcements, a couple of things coming up. And we're still in chapter 14. I plan to complete that chapter today. And that'll put us very, very close to the end of the main portion of the book. And dealing with pretty much the same topic, the same area, that same uh, area dealing with the uh, Christian liberty. I won't go through the chart again. You've seen it enough times. You've got it memorized. But the context of that passage, the chapter beginning in chapter 14, beginning verse 1 through the middle of chapter 15, The main purpose is Paul is preventing conflicts or attempting to prevent conflicts amongst the believers at the church at Rome in these questionable areas that primarily are related to people's backgrounds. And in the first century, the background of main concern was the background of differences between believers that came out of a Jewish background the legalistic background that was used to observing certain days and was prohibited from eating eating certain foods. But it was also addressed to a Gentile audience that also came out of different backgrounds. And their background, primarily, some of them came from a pagan worship system that included sacrificing meats to idols. And we saw the details of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 at Corinth, which was predominantly Gentile. So both Jew and Gentile were involved at the church at Rome or the churches at Rome. And these background issues in questionable areas, and that's very important to keep in mind because he's not dealing with absolutes. There are, there are things that God has made clear in his word, things that are right, things that are wrong, that uh, there's not any question about them. I mean, you have clear scriptural revelation concerning certain things, things in the the moral realm, things in terms of uh, treatment of one another, in other words, relationships, areas that are clearly prohibited, Ten Commandment type things. That's not what he's dealing with in chapters 14 through the middle of chapter 15. What he's dealing with here are areas that primarily come from background and were still an issue in the church relating to Christian freedom. And I think that's why I title it Christian, this whole section, Christian Liberty. So he's trying to prevent these conflicts that are inevitable. These conflicts are also very common in our culture as well. So the passage is certainly relevant. And chapter 15, he's going to go over the same thing from a different perspective. So that's kind of the overarching and main purpose of this whole section, preventing conflicts in questionable areas. Now, in uh, chapter 14 specifically, first 12 verses deal with accepting one another. In other words, accepting the differences, not making them an issue. In other words, God has accepted all of us. And he desires that we accept one another as well. So we had several reasons 
In order to do that, we've looked at them, and we've been looking at the portion at the end of chapter 14, 13 through 23, another major encouragement along the lines of preventing conflicts is even though we may have certain liberties, personally, we will restrain ourselves from exercising those liberties if, in fact, they are going to cause others to have a problem. So we restrain one's own convictions for the benefit of others. So that's the theme that runs from 13 through 23. And there's different parts of it. We've already looked at the first part of it, restraining for edification. We've looked at the exhortations on restraints. And there's several exhortations. There's going to be some more beginning in verse 19, but 13 through 18, I've been stressing these exhortations. And it begins with a major one, therefore let us not judge one another anymore, kind of reviewing all of the things that he said in the first 12 verses, but rather determine this, and the emphasis now is more on the positive. Uh, The emphasis in 1 through 12 has been uh, somewhat from a negative perspective, but now he's going to deal with uh, more positive issues. So not putting an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. And we've looked at some of those already. And then in verse 18, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God. Uh, What I'd like to emphasize today, beginning in verse, actually verse 18, but especially 19 through the end of the chapter, I think we have encapsulated in these verses some of the main priorities concerning what God desires from us. In other words, God's priorities. And in that verse, we have a hint at least, uh, at least the first thing. Anyone that is a believer, I think these are things that we need uh, to think about in terms of, am I involved in these things, these priorities, these things that God has laid out And he lays out some of them, not all of them, but uh, I think some major priorities in terms of what he desires from you and I as believers in in him. Now, in general, and I'm not speaking of anyone in our group, because I think most of you are not only more mature as believers, but most of you are fulfilling what God desires of you, and most of you have your priorities in order— but these are for the benefit of those that you may be discipling. These are things you might want to want to stress in terms of what God expects of us. So that one verse in verse 18, for he who in this way serves Christ. So in relationship to the Lord, one thing that the Lord desires of us is some level of service. And every believer should be involved in some way based on their spiritual gift. We spent some time looking at spiritual gifts in chapter 12. God has given us spiritual gifts in order to serve him. And not just to be doing things and not just to be serving and not just to occupy our time, but it's in service that we also grow. And it's in service that we experience the 
the enablement and we the relationship with the Lord because we have to depend on him as we minister to others. And I think much of the Christian life should be occupied with an attitude at least of serving serving the Lord through the body that he has put us in or the circle of believers that he has put us with. Now, I know the typical attitude of most believers, not probably anyone in our group, but most believers have the attitude, well, I just go to church and that's kind of my Christian experience. And then Monday I go to work and spend the rest of the week doing secular things, I guess you think. And the only time you think about the Lord is maybe a five-minute little prayer in the morning and maybe, you know, you get ready to go to church on Sunday and that's it. But really, our whole life should be oriented around what the Lord is doing and the ministry that he's given us. And except for a baby Christian, one that has just recently come into a relationship with the Lord, one of the attitudes we should have is, how can I serve the Lord? This is not only the means by which I will bless others, but it's going to be the means by which God fulfills us and fills the the purpose that he has for us here on earth. So we have a hint of that. So that's one of the priorities, and there's a couple of others that we'll look at as we move through the passage. So I began with verse 18, the last exhortation on restraining our liberty. Now, in uh, 19 through 23, we have more exhortations, but these are more oriented towards the positive, as I was saying. In other words, building up, and it starts with an attitude of service to the Lord, and then it takes some um, definite decisions and choices that we make in terms of relationships with other people. So we have another exhortation, lots of them, and in verse 19, so then... We pursue the things which make for peace. Now, in this context, that's what he's been talking about all along. He's been talking about unity. He's been talking about relationships. He's been talking about the things that divide us, these differences, these things from our past, our misunderstanding of liberty or our lack of understanding of liberty or our overt exercise of that liberty in the midst of those that are not in the same place. And this can cause conflicts in the body of Christ. So uh, he says, then we pursue the things which make for peace. Now, that's an interesting word. We've been looking at these words, and we looked at the word hurt, the word destroy, a very strong word. Uh, We came to the conclusion that in this context, uh, spiritual loss, spiritual damage, We came across the only time that Paul uses the word kingdom in Romans, and I came to the conclusion that it looks at the broader perspective of the kingdom, the idea of acceptability or acceptable, well-pleasing is the idea, well-pleasing to the Lord, approved, we saw that last time, approved after testing, and now we have another word, which is very interesting because it's used in almost a, a drastically different sense. This same word, dioko, can be used and is used in many passages where it's translated to persecute. So the idea there is a pursuit for the purpose of doing damage. 
or for the purpose of trying to silence or for the purpose of trying to suppress another person. And it's translated persecute. And that's essentially the essence of what happens when uh, people are under persecution, either from the government or individuals. They are pursued for a negative purpose, a damaging purpose. And that word is used in that sense. In fact, very commonly. But it's also used in a more neutral or even a positive sense as this context, in this context, a more positive sense to pursue for a positive outcome or a positive effect and translated simply pursue the things which make for peace. So this is a definite, you might even say active and definite purpose the pursuing of peace. So that's another exhortation that we can add to our list here, the pursuit of peace. And this is a positive one. We've had mainly negative ones and some of them in the imperative mood. This one is is a command, but it's not imperative. It's it's a different Greek structure, but it's it's a command all the same, but it's a positive one. So in the midst of These differing convictions, conflict is inevitable, and problems can arise from that conflict. And those of us, and by the way, this this portion is probably directed more to the strong. In other words, they are to take the initiative, they are to take the leadership in terms of pursuing peace. So whenever we have a sense that there might be some uh, problems here, first thing that we should think about is how can I resolve this issue? How can I pursue this area of peace? So in terms of relationship, I think this is another major priority that God has for us as believers, particularly in terms of relationships. There are so many things that will divide us, not only these cultural background issues, but just personality things, and that's probably one of the main things that uh, divide us as believers. And we are to be, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. And here's a passage that essentially commands us to pursue peace. So one of the priorities that God has for us is pursuing and dealing with relationships where conflicts arise. And then the verse also gives us another positive, the building up of one another. And that kind of is an expansion of uh, the service of the Lord, because the service of the Lord inevitably involves the body of Christ and uh, other believers. And our mindset should be, what can I do to continue to build up the body of Christ, one another, And certainly in this context, how can I build up the weak in faith and move them along and encourage them and not be a stumbling block, not be all the things that we've already looked at that are in the negative. The word that is used here is used quite frequently. In fact, you might even turn to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, this kind of the central passage in all of the New Testament that deals with ministering to one another in our spiritual gift. And in that passage, we have the usage of this word, 
in a context of ministering to one another. Would somebody care to read Ephesians 4.12? I don't have it on the slides here. Yeah, I got it. You got it? Ephesians Uh 4.12. Now, in the context, it's in the context of spiritual gifts. Uh, Verse 7, why don't you read verse 7 and then read verse 12. Uh, 7 and then skip to 11 and then read verse 12. 7, 11, 12. 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, he uses grace there in the context of spiritual gifts. So he's calling them grace. Skip to 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Okay, we have two words there that are related to building up, the equipping of the saints. So these primary gifts, these primary leadership gifts are intended to equip the saints. This is how churches should function. In other words, the leaders should equip the the saints, the believers, for the work of of service, in other words, to give them the equipment, give them all the uh, insight, all the grounding that they need, in order that they may what do the work of service. All of the believers in the body of Christ, God has intended that we be involved in not only serving Him but ministering to the body. And the outcome of that is the building up, the same word that we have here in Romans, the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, the maturing, the development, the growth, the stimulation of the body such that uh, people are not only drawn closer to the Lord, but they are in turn equipped as well and encouraged along the lines of walking according to what God would have. So the building up, oikodome is the the Greek word there. He's going to emphasize this some more as we get further in. In fact, in this same subsection, uh, notice 15, 2, would somebody care to read the noun form? This Now, we have the noun form in uh, verse 19 here, and we have it again in uh, 15, 2. Would somebody care to read that? Romans 15, 2. I've got it, Ray. Okay, go ahead. Us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Okay. In other words, for his, New American Standard, to his edification. So another command, another reinforcing verse along with uh, verse 19. And then he's going to use the verb form that has the same idea of building up or stimulating for growth. In verse 20, would somebody care to read that one in chapter 15? So, I uh, have it. Go ahead. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where it w- where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. The same word, except here is the verb form. The same idea of building up. Now, in that context, Paul is explaining his ministry and He's not going to barge in and take somebody else's ministry and let them have the joy and the encouragement and the fulfillment of ministering. He's not going to build on another person's foundation. 
the idea is all of us have a part and uh, all of us are given the opportunity to build up. So in our little list of exhortations, I need another slide here. Filled up one slide and add the first part of verse 19, pursuing peace. And now we have another positive in the green, edify believers. So lots of encouragements. And this we can add to our list of God's priorities. One of the main things that we should be involved in, one of the main things that God desires that we be active in is in the maturing and the encouragement and the growth of others. And we do that through the spiritual gifts that God has given us. So service and more specifically, the building up of the body. This is with believers. Now service is broad. It can involve things behind the scenes that don't directly affect people. The service can involve the unbeliever and uh, the second area, the peacemakers as well in the context of conflict, but the broad area of edification. So that's verse 19. Now in verse 20, the opposite or the the negative aspect reminded because this is so we're so prone in this area we need to be uh, continually reminded of the exhortation against tearing down verses 20 and 21 do not tear down the work of God and now he relates we've already talked about the stumbling blocks and the obstacles and the damage and the hurt in the prior verses now here he uses a, a different approach relating any of that damage or any of that stumbling block. It actually is an effect, is, is affecting the work of God. So tearing down, demanding that we, we exercise our liberty, uh, demanding that we maintain that liberty. And if it causes another brother to, to stumble, it actually tears down and it tears down the work of God. In other words, the, the work that God is doing in the world, and particularly in the world where we have uh, influence or we have a place. So another negative, we can add it to our list of negatives, don't undermine God's work. And in this context, this is a definite imperative. It's in the imperative mood, command, however you want to phrase it. So don't undermine God's work. Now, I think it's specific in this context, but I think it can be applied on a broader basis as well. In other words, anything that does damage, anything that does not edify is actually undermining what God is is doing in the world today and particularly in the world of the immediate place where we have influence and where God has put us in terms of church body or influence amongst the believers. So from the negative, don't undermine the work of God. From the positive, we should be doing the opposite of building up rather than undermining the work. Now, both ideas, kind of our construction images, you might say, even though they're not strictly images, but you can think in terms of a physical image of building something, putting things together as opposed to tearing things down. And then we also have in verse 20, 
All things, now back to the immediate context, all things indeed are clean, re-emphasizing what we saw in verse 14, that God has declared all things clean. So things inherently, we talked about pork, there's nothing evil about it, there's nothing inherently bad about it. It was prohibited in the Old Testament, but in fact, Christ declared all things clean, and the things in God's creation were created for our benefit, for our pleasure, for our nourishment, for our good, and all things indeed are clean. But here's the problem again, the same problem we've been discussing throughout the passage. They are evil. In other words, that that is good, that that is clean, can be evil, and it's not the, the meat or the day that is evil in itself. That's clear. What makes it evil is the damage that it can do to somebody's conscience. So they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. In other words, if there's somebody that is offended by whatever we, we are eating or doing, and in our culture it may not simply be limited, and I don't think he's limiting here He's just reminding us of what he's already talked about, this broader area of things that can give offense. So what is evil is what the damage can be done, not in the eating of itself, but the the damage that is done to somebody else. So they are evil, whatever you eat, for the man who eats and gives offense. And it becomes a stumbling block and damage to the fellow believer. It is good, in other words, he's expanding upon it, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine. Now he brings in the drinking of wine, which was probably not a Jewish issue, but probably an issue amongst the Gentiles who came from a lifestyle of debauchery and were orgies, were part of a pagan worship scene. And uh, now they have an aversion to drinking alcohol at all. But it would apply in our culture where that is an issue in terms of the problem of alcoholism and people that come from backgrounds that that has been a damaging thing as well. So it is good not to eat meat or to drink, even though you may have the liberty, in other words, in Christ... You may have the freedom and the liberty to eat whatever and to drink whatever, but it is good not to do that. In other words, back to that main theme of limiting our liberty for the benefit of others or to do anything, there's the broader statement, by which your brother stumbles. And that's the bottom line. We limit our liberty if, in fact, it causes others damage. And when it does that, that is the evil. It's not the eating. We never lose the liberty. We restrain voluntarily the liberty. We've been saying that all along because of sensitivity to those that may be offended by it or may be damaged. Their conscience may be hurt. So another major priority of God is self-control We don't lose liberty. We set it aside for the benefit of others. So God has priorities in terms of our relationship to him, an attitude of service in terms of relationships, particularly those that involve conflicts. We are to be peacemakers 
in terms of the broader body of Christ, an attitude of building them up, doing whatever we can in our relationships to build them up, edify them. And personally, uh, we have a, a responsibility in terms of ourselves as well. In other words, our personal self-control in being sensitive to others as well. So that's verses 19 through 21. And now he's going to deal with the issue of faith in 22 through the end of the chapter. And this is an interesting set of two verses, focus on faith. I think it's going to help us to understand it and keep it in the context. So let's take a look at this concept. We've already seen faith. Remember, we we even defined it earlier. I don't know if any of you remember in the context of chapter 14 and 15, does anyone remember how we defined how he's using this word faith? Anyone? Ray. No? Yep. Did you have a slide on it? Yeah, I, I had recall. one. I don't, I don't have it handy, but yeah. I, okay. Yeah, I, <laughs> it's I the body of doctrine that we believe. <laughs> Pardon me? It's the body of doctrine that we believe. Uh, I don't think he's quite—he's not quite using it in that sense. That is the way the word is used, pistis or pistuo, the verb form. That's a common way that it's used in terms of a, a broader sense. And who's that, uh, Sharon? Oh, it was Connie. Connie. I, I was saying confidence or assurance. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In this context. He's using it in the sense of those things that we have confidence or convictions of or assurance of. He's not talking about faith in Christ in terms of justification. Uh, That's another way that it's used very commonly in terms of believing what God has said concerning the doctrine of salvation or believing what God has said in terms of the Christian walk. Now, The word is used in those senses and other contexts, but in this context, he's not relating to justification, as as Connie has pointed out. It's more the idea of these convictions, the confidence that we have in the freedom that we have in Christ. So the faith which we have, in other words, this confidence or this assurance that uh, it is okay to eat pork, for example, or if you have the freedom to drink alcoholic beverages in Christ, that confidence, that faith, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction. And that's the key here, your own conviction before God. So this is the context. So you, you interpret words in their context. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. In other words, the things that you are free and that God has freed you from, you don't have those problems. You you recognize that freedom. You have it as your own conviction before God. In other words, you don't lose your freedom. We've been talking about that as well. Uh, it's not taking away any of your freedom in Christ, but now in sensitivity to those that uh, don't have that same faith. And that's how he's using the word weak in faith. In other words, weak in terms of that assurance of freedom, the convictions of freedom. Some are not in the same place. 
So that faith, that conviction that you have, you maintain it. And you, you are totally free if you are away from somebody that does not have the same conviction to exercise that freedom. Then he adds to that, well, before we get to the last part there, kind of another imperative. In the imperative mood, you can keep your conviction. So it's a strong encouragement here, strong exhortation, and it's a positive You have the full freedom in Christ. You don't lose it. You simply limit it for the benefit of others. And then happy is he who who does not condemn himself in what he approves. Now, make sure that you, in Christ, do in fact have a free conscience in these areas. But if your conscience bothers you and your conscience condemns you, then uh, a little bit of a warning here. But happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And then we have verse 23. Any comments on that, by the way? Is is that clear? That might be uh, one of the verses that may not be as clear as some of the others. I think... What's uh, the word happy? What's the word happy mean? What are some of the meanings you would I think it's sometimes translated blessed... I think it's that, uh, I can't remember the specific Greek word. Maybe somebody can pull it up. I think the Greek word is makarios. Yeah, that's the... Yeah, makarios. Great. So that's the same word that we have in the Beatitudes. Blessed is the man or happy is the man. I think I I would have more questions on this verse, verse 23 than 22. Yes, yeah, exactly. But he who doubts, in other words, if there's a question, if you're you still haven't sorted out and you don't have the freedom, kind of the opposite of the faith idea, that he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Uh, Your conscience is going to bother you if you haven't clarified that, if you're not free, if you're not free yet. He who doubts condemns himself if he eats because his eating is not from faith. In other words, it's not from that conviction and that confidence that God has given you that freedom. And some of us just don't have the same freedom as others in some areas because of some of that background. And then the last phrase that I think you need to keep in in mind the context here, whatever is not from faith is sin. Now, I guess the question I think that Connie's got here is how far do you take that and what does that mean? Well, first of all, I think we have to look at the context and look at how Paul has been using faith in this context and understand uh, what he's dealing with when he's talking about faith here. I don't think it's as broad as sometimes we just take this verse and take this idea of faith in the sense of this broad trusting in God. I think he's using it in the same sense as he's been using it throughout chapter 14. This conviction, this confidence, this idea of freedom. So whatever is not from this confidence is sin. And I think that's the primary sense here. Now, there might be a broader sense in which whatever is not from faith is sin, but I think that is 
at least the more specific meaning that we have here. Does that does that make sense, Connie? Does that clarify something? Well, well my question is more about the condemned. What, oh, okay. what kind of co- – is this just like a self-condemnation because, oh, no, I did something I shouldn't have? Or is this, you know, an actual condemnation by God um, for – lack of faith or whatever um that's kind of like yeah yeah no that's that's a good question again you keep it in the context and he's talking about these areas of convictions these areas of freedom and lack of freedom and if you're doubting it's going to condemn you and he's talking about conscience and i think it's it's a personal condemnation of a guilty conscience Again, you know, just like the word destroy sometimes is used in a sense of an eternal destruction, and sometimes the word condemned, and by the way, I think it's krino. Is that, anyone have your Greek text open there? Yeah, it's actually, it's um, katakrino. Katakrino, okay, katakrino, the compound word, which uh, intensifies it, actually, so very strong. Sometimes that word is used in an eternal sense of eternal condemnation, but I think in this context is dealing with uh, conscience and a guilty conscience. So I think that's the sense here. He who doubts is condemned. So is it is the same word in twenty two that he who does not happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats. That's a so good does Catacrino have anything to do with condemn, self-condemnation? Let's see. Uh, you know, 22, uh, is 20, 22 is Crino. Ray? Yes. It's a passive voice, uh, too. So it, it does seem like it has to do with then in the internal struggle of a person with himself. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, Thanks, it's a, Jim. It's perfect as well. Yeah, 23 is katakrino, and 22 is krino. So the same root of krino that we've already seen. We've uh, looked at that word before. And again, in this context, it's not et- has nothing to do with eternal security. has nothing to do with separating from God. But it has more in terms of this personal relationship. It can break a relationship with God in terms of fellowship. Yeah, so 22 is krino, kata krino, which is the intensifying of the the, the basic word. Somebody had a comment? Um, I did, Ray. Um, so I'm as I'm thinking about this 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats. Uh, I'm... I'm <sighs> I'm getting the picture from Paul that he's trying to convey how important it is for us to follow our conscience. Yes. Um, and how and how dangerous. And I'm thinking about scripture where uh, it talks about men who have their conscience seared, yes. right, as yes. with a hot iron. And so I think Paul is really trying to preserve believers from. Um, basically uh, making it so that their conscience no longer functions. And if you violate your conscience, even if it's a gray area, you're still 
uh, removing that sensitivity, right? And you're likely then to continue to walk in other areas of outright disobedience. Yes. Yeah, the danger. Yeah, if you look up, in fact, because the word conscience didn't appear in our context here, I didn't give you all the word study on it. But if you do a word study on the word conscience, you're going to see a lot of context where you can damage your conscience. And as Maddie is pointing out, you can even sear your conscience and you can callous it. In other words, you become, if you are continually violating your conscience, you can uh, damage your conscience. Now, the unbeliever has a totally distorted conscience. He doesn't ever lose, we never lose our conscience, but we don't have a true picture. You can have a false guilt as well, even as a believer. So the conscience is very important, and I agree with Maddie, and, and I think that's the main thrust of what he's talking about, even though he doesn't use the word here. Now, if you remember, he used the word in uh, 1 Corinthians 8. Remember, we took a little side trip and looked at 1 Corinthians 8, where he does use the word conscience in a very similar context as what we have here. A different cultural context, but the same issue of questionable areas. Is that helpful? So condemning is in the sense of doing some damage to the conscience, not condemning, sending them to hell, not condemning in terms of separating from God. Now, it can get you out of fellowship, but doing damage to the conscience. So, yeah, good clarification there. Any other comments? Um, I do have one more, Ray, if no one has anything else. If not, I'll hold on to mine and wait. Go ahead. Okay. So then um, the last part of this verse, uh, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, I think you in your earlier comments did a really good job of qualifying that in terms of gray areas. Um, I have heard proponents of um, Calvinistic theology apply this to unbelievers and say that because unbelievers do not have faith mm-hmm. in God, that anything that good that they do is not really good, but it's really sin. Um, and of course, I've always disagreed with that, but I wanted to bring that forward and ask for your comment on that. Well, I agree with your comment, and I think that's taking it beyond, beyond the context which means that it's probably beyond the intent of Paul in terms of what he's trying to convey here. So I think it's taking it one step beyond, and I would agree with you. Okay. And it's a good comment, by the way. That was one of the things that I was alluding to in terms of the broader way that people generally take this verse, or often take this verse. Okay, Okay, well, amazingly, we finished sooner than what I thought I would. But let me take a few minutes here to introduce the next passage, and I will try to get through six verses next time. In chapter 15, there are two parts to the, uh, the next part of this, where uh, the emphasis is on, I think, Christ-likeness. He's going to use Christ as an example, and in my outline here, 
first 12 verses I've grouped together of chapter 14, and I call that the reception of differing convictions or accepting of one another in our different places. And then 13 through 23, we just completed the restraint, the, the restraining of our freedom for the benefit of others or for edification. And then uh, here in chapter 15, the first six verses, I call it the responsibility of Christ-likeness. So I've got the alliterating R's there, the responsibility of Christ-likeness. And in order to be Christ-like, we follow Christ's example. Uh, obviously, Christ is utterly and ultimately free because he is God himself. He is creator. But even he limited himself in order to benefit you and I. And from that example, I think we have the responsibility of Christ-likeness as well. So it's talking about pleasing one another in the context, first four verses, and Christ is the example of pleasing. And then the last part of uh, chapter 15, 7 through 13, uh, the focus is glorifying God. So the bottom line is the glory of God in the midst of these conflicts. Uh, We want to, bottom line, glorify God. So that brings us to our last slide. We are to express love by restraining our freedom in order that we might edify others. So that's kind of the main idea of probably all of verses 19 through 23. We are to express love by restraining our freedom to edify others. All righty, let's have a time of prayer. I pray that she would be able to uh, take and make the time to work on these 70 lessons you have to translate, Lord, that um, if you so desire, you would bring alongside her someone to help in that endeavor. We thank you for Alicia, that uh, she is able to take care of her brother. Pray that you would protect her from getting sick as well. Uh, Pray that you would lead, guide, and direct her with wisdom about this Uh, person she met online and whether or not to uh, continue to be involved with him in a relationship Um, and that that you would help the church campsite to be able to finish the buildings um, so that um, more ministry can go on including the medical brigade we lift john baumgartner before you father we thank you for your protection over his life um Pray for his strength to return uh, to its full so that this fall, as he teaches, uh, he would be able to do so from a position of your strength. We pray the same for Pastor George, uh, that you would help him to recover, that you would renew his strength like the eagles, um, that in his absence you would give Norman wisdom as to what lessons it is you want that congregation to hear um, and then help him to prepare those lessons. Um, Watch over Steve and Barb in their journey when they come up to Albuquerque. I think the Kurtzers in Idaho Falls, watch over them as they continue their travels. Um, We pray for Mariana, Lord, that you would give her a willing spirit to do her part in her recovery. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And Steve, Steve and Barb will be traveling to California first, by the way. So you can pray for uh -huh. that, that part of the trip, too. Yes, Lord. Father, we pray for these stranded orphans and ask you to get them a good home and some good care. We pray for Linda, that you will make her path straight, show her precisely what you have in mind and how you plan to carry them. Mm -hmm. 